Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, March the 1st, 2016, the Russia and Egypt Killing People edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics, the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. Joined as usual by my co-hosts, Chris Stahli Akinthu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hello there, Chris Stahli. Hello Adam, hello world. And by Scott Lucas, a Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you, Scott? I'm surviving. Unlike people in Russia and Egypt, apparently, from your introduction. No, it hasn't even got, we haven't even got to it yet. Uh, two topics this week. First, news out of both Syria and Ukraine puts Russia's role as the great power bad boy of international politics back in the spotlight. We ask again what to do with a problem like Vladimir. Second, a Cambridge doctoral student is found tortured and dead in Egypt, but no explanation is forthcoming. Whatever happened to the Arab Spring? On Saturday, a ceasefire between some of the participants in the Syrian civil war came into force. Russia, which has been supporting the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad with air power since September, made full use of the run-up to the ceasefire to get all the bombing done that it could. The ceasefire does not apply to either ISIS, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or the al-Nusra Front, two of the most significant anti-government forces, and already Russia has been accused of continuing airstrikes in violation of the ceasefire, although that seems muddy at the moment. Most things tend to seem muddy when it comes to what Russia has or hasn't done. Things are also pretty hairy around the Turkish border, where Russia accuses that government of mounting its own attacks on Kurdish separatist fighters. So that's part one of this part one. The second Russian news of the week came when a British-led collective of citizen journalists claimed it had found evidence pointing to Russian soldiers as the source of the missile that shot down Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 over Ukraine in 2014. A Dutch investigation in October had already attributed the plane's destruction, which killed 298 people, to a Russian made Buk missile. Now a 115-page report from the group Bellingcat claims to have used open source online sources to place dozens of soldiers and officers of the Russian 53rd Brigade in eastern Ukraine at the time. Who precisely fired the rocket remains unclear, but this report pokes further holes in Russia's repeated denials that it had anything to do with the downing of MH17, or indeed that its military was operating in Ukraine at the time. Uh, These two issues are distinct, I guess, but both reaffirm the impression that under President and photogenic supervillain Vladimir Putin, Russia is a belligerent actor these days, careless with human life in pursuit of its ends, willing to empower some recklessly awful or awfully reckless proxies when convenient, and ready to lie about it without scruple when what it's doing uh, has emerged in partial form. So, Scott, uh, let me remind everyone, first of all, that you and I talked Syria at a public debate recently, and we'll have the link for that as soon as they send it to us. It's been a bit delayed, but that'll be on our show page soon. But bringing, bringing us up to date, you've been pretty critical of Russia for some time and pretty keen on more Western intervention in Syria. You are, however, also pretty skeptical about this ceasefire, if I've uh, been reading you right. So give me your take on this. Well, from a starting point of Syria, I would welcome a meaningful ceasefire, ceasefires in the plural, if they covered all areas of the country. So certainly President Assad is protected by the Russians, by the Iranians, by Hezbollah, and his area of the country from attack. Uh, Kurdish forces are protected by the United States, the U.S.-led coalition, from attack, especially in the north of Syria. And the problem is that the opposition in rebel-held areas are not protected. There hasn't been a meaningful ceasefire. Now, since this supposed cessation of hostilities, the official term on Saturday, there have continued to be regime and Russian attacks uh, in at least five different provinces. Uh, Not just alleged, I'm not even going to use that qualifier, they are attacks. I mean, there's video evidence, there's eyewitnesses. There's activists that testified to this. And, and who are they bombing in those attacks? Because as, as I mentioned in the intro, this, yeah. Yeah. this is a partial ceasefire. So there are some people yeah. who they would in principle be legitimate attacking. Is, is it in any way arguable that they're attacking the people they're supposed to be able to attack? Or is it clear that they're attacking groups who are not either yeah. in al-Nusra or in ISIS? Let me be clear. First of all, they're not attacking the Islamic State in these five provinces, which are mainly in the northwest and in the uh, center of Syria. ISIS are further to the east. Secondly, uh, that while Jabhat and Israel in the past have uh, had a tactical alliance with uh, rebel groups in these areas, these particular villages that are being hit do not have an al-Nusra presence. 
Uh, we're talking about conservatively about 30 people that have been killed in the attacks in the last 72 hours. Now, that by no means is on the scale of what we've been looking at in previous months, but it's still a ceasefire violation, and it's a deliberate ceasefire violation, which is not accidental. And Russia is still not being called out by the international community and by the United States in particular. So John Kerry said to, uh, in his latest statement yesterday, said, oh, we will dig into this. We will dig into this, and if we find something, you know, and I've heard that before. And I guess the wider pattern to go to, first of all, the wider pattern in Syria is, is that Russia changed the nature of the game last autumn. I mean, they changed the nature of the game with a military intervention, with massive bombardment, uh, thousands of airstrikes, more than 80% on the opposition rebels, not on the Islamic State. They did so in the support of the Assad regime, and no one's called them out on it. They paid absolutely no price for that intervention. And then the second level beyond this, and why it's worrying is, is that no one has called out Russia effectively for the type of intervention that they carried out in eastern Ukraine. Now, you may say there is a separatist case. In fact, I think there is a separatist case for autonomy, for recognition of rights and reforms. But that case should be made not at the point of a Russian gun. And unfortunately, not just the United States, but the international community has accepted the Russian conditions de facto in both Ukraine and Syria for negotiations because they have not stood against the military pressure. Scott, I was interested in what's happening on the Turkish border and particularly the lack of, I mean, what's happening in Turkey now internally, Turkey's relationship with the Kurdish forces uh, and the, the effect that that's having particularly on those border regions in the broader conflict with Russia. We should note for the benefit of uh, forgetful listeners that uh, the Turks shot down a Russian airplane uh, uh-huh. not that long ago with predictable fire and brimstone reaction from the Russians at the time. I, I think the question, even more than the Turkish-Russian dynamic, the question of the Turkish-Kurdish dynamic reinforces the need for what is a true ceasefire, yeah. a meaningful ceasefire. Uh, in no way would I argue that we simply cast blame on Russia to let the Turks go ahead and fire across the border against Kurdish militia, specific Kurdish militia, I should say. Not all Kurds. We're talking about a Kurdish militia called the YPG. Yeah, which is, which is more what, or less a, a subsidiary of, of the PKK. Of the Turkish Kurdish insurgency, yeah. the PKK. That's Ankara's claim, that they're fundamentally linked. So you need a ceasefire to, de- to stabilize that situation as well. But what's happened in the last few days is quite interesting. The Russians, to deflect attention from the criticism that they've broken the ceasefire, said, oh, oh, oh look, at the Kur- look at the Turks. They shelled the YPG. They, they shelled it. And that story was not true. <laughs> it just blatantly was not true. But there's also increasing, ant- I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a Turkey defender by any means, but no, there's also... I think an- this program has probably established <laughs> that none of us at this and point yes, are Turkey defenders. I find myself in, in the position today of saying I think there have been some pretty um, inflammatory efforts by the kind of Iran... Russia nexus to provoke Turkey, and Turkey doesn't need much provocation. Not just not just Iran and Russia. In in the run up to the ceasefire in February, uh, the Kurdish militia YPG, which is part of a political movement called the PYD, the uh, Kurdistan Democratic Union Party, they began advancing and taking rebel-held territory in northern Aleppo, and they did this in an indirect collaboration with Russia and the regime forces, because Russia and the regime were attacking at the same time. And they did it with direct support from the Russians. So the Russians were supporting a Kurdish advance against the rebels, which is bound to antagonize Turkey. All right, now we've got a ceasefire. Okay, so the Kurdish forces shouldn't advance, the rebels shouldn't advance, no one should advance. Who's breaking it? The Turks? The Kurds? No, it's the Russians. It's the Russians and the Assad regime. And that's why you go to the source of what's happening, and you call a uh, ceasefire-breaking spade a ceasefire-breaking spade. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I can't help feeling when I look at the Syrian situation, or indeed the, the Eastern European situation, but especially in Syria, that the Russians have a really big advantage in that they are really super clear what it is that they want. They supported the government that was there before. They want that government to stay in place if possible. Failing that, they want it to be replaced by something that they're, that they're comfortable with. And they're not particularly scrupulous about how that's achieved. They're clearly more or less 
entirely indifferent to humanitarian concerns. They're not particularly bothered about how they're perceived, at least by large swathes of the international community. You know, they're and then they're they're not particularly hung up on questions of honesty either. They're kind of like the Donald Trump of of, of international politics in the sense they're prepared to do utterly beyond the pale things, and then they're prepared to just lie about what they're doing as a way of responding to, to criticism. And that just provides them with so much more freedom and uh, likelihood, it seems to me, of getting what they want, because coming at it from our perspective in the UK or coming at it from a US perspective, it's just impossible to, to nail down over even a week's duration what exactly it is, other than for the whole thing to just calm down and go away our desired outcome is mm. you know don't support the government don't support the government's main opponents have some tepid support for a ragbag of groups who don't seem to have any realistic possibility of achieving uh, uh, control politically over the country uh, and meanwhile while while the west wrestles with this challenge of how you intervene in a civil war when you don't really want any of the major participants in it seemingly to win and you're also bound by all of the western liberal sensibilities that come with what you, that, that come with our, our, our uh, recent approach to these to these sorts of uh, cases while also being conflicted about the humanitarian implications of this yeah i guess and it, it you know it it means that you're hamstrung by comparison with a power who basically say, well, look, we have a clear side in the war, we have resources that we're prepared to bring to bear, and frankly, if all the eggs in the fridge get broken making this omelette, that's really a price that we're prepared to pay. You know, and you know, one of the lessons of these kinds of conflicts over the years is whoever wants it more and whoever is the more ruthless, they are very hard to, they're very hard to stop. You may question you know, what... Ultimately, Russia's fighting a bit of a rear guard here in the sense that they're spending all these resources and taking all these risks to get back to somewhere worse than they started off, which is having a government that was their client uh, in place. But So it's not, it's not going to end with high fives and victory, but nevertheless, from the bad situation they're in, they know what they want. Similarly in Ukraine, uh, uh, that they, they know what they want to do. It's an ugly thing, but with a mixture of lies and callousness, it's pretty clear to see what their route to success is. I struggle to see what our route to success is, mainly because I don't know what what we define that as being. We meaning the U.S., U.K., I guess. I think you summarize that very well. But I think you start off with a fundamental question, which is, in both cases, Russia has pushed, as you've said, and uh, without coming across all Clint Eastwood, you decide whether or not you're going to draw a line on the action. So... In the case of uh, Ukraine, and let's remind ourselves, Russia effectively annexed Crimea without a legal process. Mm -hmm. They annexed it uh, via the threat of force. They tried to detach eastern Ukraine, whatever the grievances were there, from from Kiev. And finally, some sort of line was drawn in that we will go through a negotiating process, through the Minsk process. Now, you can't undo what's happened in Ukraine so far. You can draw a line in Syria, and the line is this, that you now have the ceasefires in place. You enforce the ceasefires, and that means that you set up a line and Russian aircraft do not patrol, patrol, let alone bomb. They do not patrol over certain areas of Syria. There's your line right there. Now, but the uh, point is, I mean, in, in Adam's hyper-realist kind of sure. summary of this, how do you enforce that against a party that doesn't, doesn't give a damn? Yeah, that, I mean, that's the question. Like, or what is the question? So what? If Russia is doing this and you say, don't do that, Russia, and they go, well, they thumb their nose yeah. at you, which would be the nice version of their likely response, you know, what, what is your leverage to persuade Russia to do stuff that they don't think it's in their interest to do and don't feel like doing? Sure. There are two forms of leverage, and I know exactly why uh, one of them is not going to be pursued, but I'll put it out there anyway. The first is there are U.S. aircraft, there are Turkish aircraft, there are now Saudi aircraft, albeit only four of them. There are British aircraft, which are now on the border with northern Syria, where Russian warplanes bomb on a daily basis. <laughs> you use the U.S., Turkish, Saudi, and British aircraft 
to set up a no-fly zone. Bang. Bottom line. Now, I know... That sounds awfully like threatening to shoot down Russian planes if they enter the air. You've drawn drawn the line. You've drawn the line. But then you have to... What if someone crosses it? I mean, you can say that, but I mean, I don't... I guess the problem is... But I think... Sorry, go on. I I was just going to say, like, if you... If you then have to come back to the United States and say, because I care so much about the humanitarian situation in Syria, I'm going to start a fighting war with Russia, that is, that whoa, is not something people are inclined we didn't, to... We didn't, well, we didn't start it. You set up a no-fly zone. You set up a zone to enforce the ceasefires and set up... That's a defensive position. Right, but on what authority? I mean, saying that you—I mean, saying that you declare a no-fly zone is basically just saying I threaten unilaterally to shoot down planes that fly over this air. It doesn't uh, have nobody, no, but nobody's threatening. Nobody's. I'm sorry. I'm going to visit. Well, saying that this is a no-fly zone on your own authority and not anything else is a threat. It's a threat to shoot down things that fly into Look, the space. If Russia chooses to make the challenge of flight, you're asking me what? You're actually answering your own question. You're asking why no one has challenged. The Russians so far, and you're giving the exact answer for it, because nobody wants to take the risk of drawing the line, because they fear if Russia then tests it and takes it further, what we would have to do. Right, because they care more. Ultimately, Russia cares more about the future of Syria than we do, so we fear that they would be prepared to take bigger risks than we would to to get their revenge that outcome. But I think what we, as in this this alliance of Western countries, care more about is this very in a very calculating way is this absolute uh, spill of refugees into European countries. Mm. And in that, I think, contains the leverage to to create these no-fly zones and and border um, corridors. Yeah. I mean, it's a bad thing that we would want to prevent. It gives us an incentive to do something, whether or not that gives us leverage over Russia, who are merrily churning out more of these refugees because they, they just want to annihilate the opposition in Syria. Let me put it. Let me put you the second form of leverage that is there that isn't necessarily quite as provocative, and that's economic leverage, and that actually has been the leverage which has been there, which has been on an on again, off again basis, has been enforced by yeah, varieties. Haven't you been forcing. down that road before, though? With you, I mean, that we tried to squeeze them to the extent people were prepared to squeeze them after the Ukraine business, and it doesn't. It doesn't seem to. I mean, you could argue maybe it, it provided some kind of check because we don't know how far they would have gone otherwise but it certainly hasn't reversed the situation no it hasn't reversed it but it but we're talking about a process which is not a matter of weeks not a matter of months we're talking about a long-term process and you've seen what the oil price has done since 2014 now russia as well as a number of other countries are under a great deal of economic pressure at some point you maintain that sanctions you maintain that type of pressure and you make the call to putin because he's then going to have to answer not only international community He's going to have to answer it to his own people mm. at some point. Uh, so, I mean, the reason why I'm coming back strongly against you, Adam, is, is, is not because I don't see the risks that you're talking about. I absolutely fully see it. But this is one of those hard cases where you either decide at some point you're going to take the risk or you accept the alternative. And that is, if you do not accept the risk, then you've answered your own question. There will be no pushback against the Russians. And therefore, there is no effective guarantee of humanitarian corridors there's no effective guarantee of safe zones because the Russians at any point, hmm. at any point with the Assad regime, can basically undo that. Yeah. I, know, I mean, I, I agree that it would be great to create such corridors and it would be great to create a much more uh, structured and stable basis for maintaining humanitarian norms within that region. I just feel like... You, what I still think is implicitly a unilateral threat to shut to shut uh, to shoot down Russian planes is a roll of the dice, whatever way you frame it. I just don't know that they are as guaranteed to respond. You know, because the wall's in your court with something like that. They all they have to do to call the bluff is put a plane in in the air, and then it's on you to do or not do as regards as, as regards it continuing to be there. Uh, it falls to the United States or to others to decide, does this matter to us enough to take the potential consequences of bringing that plane down? It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be my call, uh, and I imagine it wouldn't be a lot of other people's. I think you've got a, a variety of levels. If the Russians decided to do an overflight, that's one thing. Fine. They do an overflight and so on. If they do an overflight without actually dropping a bomb, see, that's fine. If they actually do an overflight and drop a bomb while you're in that area that you're supposedly patrolling, they're the ones who are the aggressors. Right now, at that point, they've they've created an aggression against a no-fly zone. We can talk about this from a legal standpoint, political standpoint, military standpoint. 
but they're in the position of having committed the aggression, not you, right? Uh, right now, there are no lines drawn against Russian behavior. And I'm saying that if you don't draw the line with what I'm proposing, where do you draw yeah. the line? Which speaks back to your argument of a few weeks ago when, when you talked about putting the bully back in his box. I mean, at the do, re- you? do you? Yes, yes, you do. Uh, but I mean... Isn't that really? I mean, as with, as with a schoolyard bully, I mean, the risk of putting a bully back in his box is that, you know, if you don't pick your battle well, then the bully will just kick the crap take out a swing you. at you. And well, I mean, I don't, think, I don't think Vladimir Putin's in a position to kick the crap out of the United States, but he is in a position to drag them into a fight that they would very much not welcome, you know. It's a dance, isn't it? It's, the, it's, it's a post-Cold War confrontation that risks spilling over. Yeah. The, the, the implicit question is always, does this matter enough to you to risk this? That's what he's asking everyone all the time, I feel like, Vladimir Putin. That's his, that's his like, bare-chested pose to the world, isn't it? I think you've, again, does it matter enough? I think that's an interesting case. I mean, to use a historical analogy without... Not for comparison, but also illustrate difference. I mean, we're now more than a half century since a line was drawn in the case of Cuba. And, of course, you know the famous case. Supposedly the Russians blinked. They didn't install nuclear missiles on the island 90 miles from the U.S. Now, why the U.S. acted so forcefully there is that's clearly seen as an imminent threat to national security. It's only 90 miles away. Why they may not be choosing to act in this case is because Syria is very far away. And I think you've put the Stephen Walt case quite effectively, a realist case, which says, look, it's, it's far away. We really don't need to pick this battle. But let me put it to you this way. What we define as national security interests needs to have a clear, hard look here because we are talking about one of the most serious refugee crises in modern history. We are talking about spillover effects that are taking in not just neighboring countries but are take, with very serious consequences, but countries which are now throughout the Middle East and throughout Europe. Now, at some point, you've got to be very, very tightly defined national security interest not to see what you are doing through non-intervention. I don't know. I mean, your, your, your example is just confirming me even more in my point of view that, that the, I mean, the, right, the refugee crisis is terrible and an enormous amount of resources would need to be devoted to dealing with it. But if your go-to for the level of risks that should be taken to try and avert it is the Cuban missile crisis... No, 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 no. no then not... I really don't think... I mean, that was like one of the times when the world has come closest to Armageddon and it was... Uh, uh, you know, a continuing matter of debate how well managed and run it was at the time uh, for many years afterwards. If, if that's the level of risk that needs to be taken to deal with this, I am nope. out. I am very much out. Like I said, I said when I prefaced it, I said you have to be careful with comparisons. What I'm saying is not that we are... <laughs> well, the, yes, you do, Scott. We're not, no, we're not at the point of talking about a nuclear conflagration if we draw this line. And you know that. Don't be too slippery with me here. The argument here is more on the point of principle, and that is that there was a line that was drawn with Soviet behavior in that crisis, right? Now, we should never have gotten to that point in Cuba where we had to draw the line at that point. We should not have gotten to this point in Syria Mm. where we have to draw this. But if you do not act, then you will face even more difficult choices in the future. I actually think the difficult choices that Scott's talking about is not going to rest on the refugee crisis but on ISIS. Um, and I think that as or if ISIS escalates its threat globally, um, as people from, from Western countries continue to filter in to fight for ISIS or affiliates, I think that this idea of um, protection of security and national security will become much more real. And the if, I think, is if Russia continues to pretend to bomb ISIS while bombing opposition and, and rebel strongholds and hospitals um, and so it, if it continues to do that and not bomb seriously any any ISIS strongholds I think that there may well be a turn in domestic sentiment in these countries which could swing the national security debate mm. and that could be the, the bridge the tightener yeah or, or if we become more worried about uh, about ISIS and less worried about everything else it just makes the Western world, you know, hopefully not President Trump, but President whoever it may be. Uh, Trump. Yeah, Adam President Trump. Trump uh, hat tipped John Oliver. Um, it, it, it makes us 
uh, more willing to embrace the unsentimental uh, coalition that Vladimir Putin has been proposing all along, which is, look, Bashar al-Assad's not a great guy. He's a bloodthirsty tyrant, if you insist on using that language. But uh, whatever else he is, he's not an international terrorist. So how about we just link arms, liquidate everybody who's opposed to him, and then, uh, you know, no, uh, no ISIS... Uh, no opposition, no ISIS, no ISIS, no terrorist threat. You know, that, that's, that's the danger and, and the, the, the subtle distinctions of who exactly the Syrian opposition is and all of that get elided in a general, we need to make tough choices about supporting dictators or risking chaos and terrorism. That's, that's the case that Putin's been hawking for at least a year and I think it might well sell. Okay, we turn now to our number of the week round, where we take a number, we take a news story, and the two hopefully prove to be linked. What have you got for us today, Scott? Well, out of my number of the week, uh, this week is 30. Uh, It comes from the Islamic Republic of Iran, and it comes from in a week where we haven't exactly been too optimistic, a more upbeat story. Uh, 30 refers to the number of MPs that were elected from Tehran uh, amongst 290 uh, seats in the parliament. Uh, in this week's elections, all 30 of those seats went to the center reformist bloc. This is linked to the president, President Rouhani. It's linked to the reformists who have been suppressed, intimidated, jailed for more than a decade, including suffering a, quote, loss in the rigged 2009 presidential elections. So just to repeat, in Tehran, the final scorecard, conservative zero, centrist and reformist, 30. The leader of the conservative bloc in Iran, a confidant of the supreme leader, uh, Mr. Haddad Adel, did not win a seat. Now, nationally, it's a much different, a mixed situation because the conservatives still do quite well outside the capital. So it will be a slight conservative majority in parliament. But the upshot of this is, despite the attempt to stack the elections by disqualifying thousands of candidates, despite the continued insistence on the Supreme Leader that if you voted for the wrong party, you would be supporting U.S. fostered sedition, that there is at least some form of opening of political exercise where those people who have seen rights removed, who have effectively been under the cosh for years, made their voices heard. So I'm quite happy about that number 30 for this week. Right. Well, that was, uh, that was quite uplifting comparatively. Over to you, Christelle. Well, my number is also a number of uh, hope in a general story of depression. My number is 360, and it comes from Guatemala, since we're talking about, uh, since we mentioned in passing Latin America and, and we talked about disappearance. 360 is the number of years in combined sentence of a retired officer and a paramilitary who have been convicted for crimes against humanity, forced disappearance and murder this week. Um, And those crimes related to the Guatemalan Civil War and genocide in the 1980s. So this conviction of these two uh, military and paramilitary officers of 360 years in prison combined um, is a landmark case and it is a story of hope and a general story of impunity. Uh, These men were sentenced for rape and sexual slavery of 15 Mayan women and the murder of their husbands and their children. This is the first time in Guatemala that anyone has uh, faced justice for sexual violence and it's the first time globally that sexual slavery perpetrated during armed conflict has been prosecuted in the country where it happened. In Yugoslavia, which is the case we always refer to, it happened in The Hague, right? So this uh, this is a really important decision. Some, there have been some two, there were some 2,000 such cases of sexual violence um, and around 200,000 deaths and disappearance in the, in the Guatemalan civil war and genocide, including the murder of the head of the Catholic Church who led the first um, attempt to clarify what happened um, and the genocide. So, and it's important for two reasons. First, because it rec- it's recognition for the victims that what happened happened and that um, and that their, their torture and the murder of their families was part of the broader Mayan genocide by the army in the state. That's number one. Um, the, reparation, the reparations decision comes out today. 
And the second reason that it's important is because it's a good news story in light of multiple attempts in Spain and Guatemala to prosecute um, for the former president of Guatemala, Rios Montt, uh, for crimes against humanity, torture and genocide. And this guy's slippery, right? He was convicted um, of those crimes and then that was overturned in, in uh, 2013. So in the, scape, in the scope of general uh, feelings about impunity, general total impunity in, in Guatemala, this story this week um, is, is really positive. So mm. we'll await the reparations decision. Indeed we will, and uh, we can perhaps have an update uh, when, when more news is forthcoming on that. My number of the week is the lowest of the, uh, of the three that we've been talking about. Uh, it is 11, and that is the number of states that are voting in the United States primaries today, uh, which is known as Super Tuesday. I don't know if you're feeling super. I'm uh, feeling I, d- I doubt I will super. be when I get as far as tomorrow morning, and I'm being expected to talk about this, having had to keep some, some rather odd hours. But for those of you who've been following the news from the United States, you will no doubt know there's been a kind of uh, dribble and drabble and trickle of results coming in from some of the individual states where the parties have their first primaries. So we had Iowa, then we had New Hampshire, we've had South Carolina and Nevada. Uh, this is the first one where a large number of states all vote on the same day, which means that uh, compared to the relatively small-scale individual state-focused retail politics that people could practice uh, prior to this point, people have to deliver on a much larger scale with voters who've primarily, I guess, come across them through the media rather than through any kind of more direct uh, contact. And it tends to be regarded as a pretty decisive moment. If you uh, have been seeking to build momentum with lower placed finishes over the course of some of those early primaries this is where you need to deliver or get out of the race conventionally we're not quite sure if that's how it's going to play out this time because the front runner in the republican case donald trump happens to be uh, so uh, hair on fire panic inducing to many even republican voters and establishment members that uh, uh, even if he does win quite a lot of these states or come first in a lot of these states there is still a desperate effort to somehow coalesce and cohere the remainder of the vote in the primary to get some other candidate, whether it be Marco Rubio, who seems the only viable available alternative right now, or somebody else into the place instead of him. So uh, we are looking forward, those of us who are students of U.S. foreign policy and indeed U.S. domestic politics, to staying up super late on Super Tuesday to see those results. We're going to have a special edition of this very podcast coming up next week. Uh, when Scott and I, and possibly a very special guest, because we're giving Cristala uh, the, the week off. I get a week off. I to, give to, my chair to an America expert. Uh, to follow her own pursuits. Uh, and we will be dissecting and discussing the results from this superest of Tuesdays and what they mean. Uh, so do come back and join us then. No, you're not getting out of that so, so easily, Adam. I want your on-the-table call now. What's your prediction for Super Tuesday? Ooh, if I had to go on the record now, I would say Donald Trump is going to win a very significant number of oh, states. Oh. Uh, I think Marco Rubio will probably come second and have to try and portray coming second in a lot of places as though even at this relatively late stage, that still counts as a win. Ordinarily, that would be totally untenable, but the sheer desperation of many people to find a not-Trump nominee may well mean that that plus the mathematical possibility that he can, uh, that he can still win uh, will keep him in the race because the hope continues to be that Donald Trump who is just possibly the most unstable just temperamentally person who has ever run for the US uh, presidency something will happen that he will do something that uh, drags him down God knows he's done enough things you'd think would so far so we don't know what that might look like but but we'll see uh, and then the others at lower levels if Ted Cruz wins uh, his own state of Texas he may stick at this for a while longer but I don't see him having a chance of winning and I think this is going to be the uh, uh, in the Democratic Party primary the close of a Hillary Clinton uh, she was unfortunate in terms of the lineup uh, of these primaries because they started in Iowa and New Hampshire, two states where her opponent, Bernie Sanders, was demographically disposed to do very well because his supporters were in large numbers. Um, she has uh, hammered him subsequently in South Carolina where the demographics favor her more 
And I think that was very much the beginning of the end. I think he's run a surprisingly uh, successful campaign. He certainly made an impact with his message and he's mobilized a lot of people. And I don't doubt that he will continue to run because there's no reason he shouldn't if it's a message campaign. But I think the period when we were flirting with the idea that Bernie Sanders might actually be the nominee is going to be drawing to a close pretty sharply on Tuesday. On January 25th, the 28-year-old Cambridge University doctoral student from Italy named Giulio Ruggeni left his flat to meet a friend in Cairo. Nine days later, his body was found in a ditch by a desert highway showing all the signs of having been tortured and killed by the Egyptian security services, including broken bones, burns, removed fingernails, and a brain hemorrhage. This, unfortunately, is business as usual for the Egyptian security state, which reportedly killed 474 Egyptians in 2015 alone. Though it is a surprise that it should happen to a foreigner with the sort of nationality one might have imagined would protect him from the worst. Italy has demanded a proper investigation, and Egypt has begun one of sorts, though one must be pessimistic of its prospects for digging up for display anything like the uncensored truth of what happened. The motive for the killing remains a matter entirely of speculation, and that speculation has involved the kind of things you might imagine. His research into labor unions in Egypt, his sideline as a journalist for a communist publication back in Italy, or of course the idea that he might have had some kind of undisclosed connection to a foreign intelligence agency, though that's been firmly denied by his family. To put this in political context, Egypt is today governed by a counter-revolutionary authoritarian military-backed regime that came to power in 2013, overthrowing a Muslim Brotherhood government that had ruled for a year following the tumultuous events of the Arab Spring and the fall of longtime strongman and Western ally Hosni Mubarak in 2011. It seemed to many when current President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi came to power that Egypt had taken a long and winding road to end up awfully close politically to where it had started. A spotlight like this on the activities of the state security apparatus confirms that impression. So, Cristala, this is obviously a tragedy for those who knew the dead man, and it speaks pretty ill of those agencies responsible for his death and also for the cover-up that no doubt we, we can anticipate is to come. What does it tell us about Egypt today? Uh, what it tells us about Egypt um, is a story not just of Egypt but also of the region, of the broader region. And if we look at the, the, the killing of um, Regini, it did exactly what you said. It spotlighted a hysterical and self-protecting regime and its apparatus to protect itself. So the first thing to talk about here is what you highlighted, that not just one Italian man was killed, which is important, but also that last year 474 um, Egyptians were disappeared, tortured, and then murdered. So... This is, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of talk about why he was killed and was it a mistake and was he doing sensitive research and was he caught up in a group that opposed the state and, and mm. all of that. Yeah, and, and the question of, I guess, how deliberate was this? Did the Egyptian state, because of whatever he was doing, knowingly take out an Italian passport holder because it was worth it or is this someone who, they, who, who someone killed and then they found out that he was this other category of person that could yeah. be a big problem for them. And, you know, yeah. no doubt someone was very angry in the system when they found that out. We don't know which side of, the, but, of that. But all of is. that is beside the point because, because his murder points to the total impunity in which the security apparatus is operating in Egypt today. Mm. And so the end story to this, I think, is to kind of cut forward, is that nothing is going to happen the 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 regime will do some kind of kind of um reporting the italians are going to lean on uh this reporting mechanism somewhat not too much and we'll talk about that in a second but at the end of the day the regime is going to continue to keep its systematic and systemic repression of mm. dissent regardless of how much the italians or the world protest because it's core to what they see to be the protection of their deadly and illegitimate regime. That's the first point. So I don't think anything is going to change, mm -hmm. um, despite Western horror that, that, a, that, a, that a Western PhD student and the real tragedy of his death. And then the second point is the backstory that's interesting, and that for me is international complicity 
enabling the maintenance of an authoritarian regime, right? And so when you look at Egypt and this story, Egypt and Italy have close economic relations. Um, and specifically here, the Italian energy group, uh, ENI, was, which is backed by the state, is developing a large Egyptian natural gas field. And they were there at the time that, that his body was found. And they very quickly left and, and registered their horror and, um, and, and discontent. Um, and so recently, Eni has made the statement expressing its support of the investigation. And Amnesty International has been leaning on them to pressure al-Sisi to take the case seriously. Mm. But in the context of the importance of those relations, I think that um, Italy is going to play a a quiet game. Um, And I think the second point is that we're talking about a region in which enforced disappearance, which is a heinous crime, right? Enforced disappearance is one of the worst. Well, it's basically murder with added uncertainty thrown in. Well, the added uncertainty is the bit that kills because, one, it's designed to prevent um, um, opposition to an oppressive government, and two, to foster that uncertainty among families. And there's nothing worse than the horror of not knowing where your loved one is and what might or might not have happened to them, right? And we're talking about a region in which, there are, if you'd look at Syria, only 60,000 people have been disappeared by the Assad regime. And I remember while I was, while I was still living in Lebanon in 2012 and 13, people had started being kidnapped in, and disappeared in Lebanon as well. And so the region is suffering from more and more disappearances that are absolutely, absolutely not being taken seriously in, in, any, in any way, shape or form, either by the international community or by um, local, local governments or regional governments that have no incentive because it's the apparatus of those states that are doing that damage. Mm. So I think that it tells this, this, this case of his killing tells a broader story of real and long-term damage done over generations to people. And Mm. I think we need to be more uh, aware of that and think about ways to respond. Yeah, because, I mean, there's two... I can imagine two very different tracks that one goes down about how... about why one's outraged about this and then what the follow-on ought to be from, from that outrage. One is... Is the, is, is the outrage that this goes on at all? Mm. Is, our, is, is the outrage about the fact that Egypt has this counter-revolutionary national security deep state mm-hmm. that with impunity, as you say, mm. lifts people, tortures people, kills people, that this is an unacceptable practice in any part of the world, especially in a part of the world that we hand over uh, with the United States, two billion dollars a year to yeah. uh, for their for their military purposes, and therefore we are upset about this because it draws a light to the broader problem of massive numbers of Egyptians being killed in this way, or is it an outrage because a citizen of uh, uh, a country? Uh, whose government is entitled to take umbrage about that, uh, has been killed. And the expectation of foreign governments is that their citizens will be treated with uh, dignity and respect and safety, and the worst that's going to happen is is that you get deported. Because if it's the second one, which one version of, I guess, the entitlements of governments and sovereignty and the international law would say, then, you know... What the Italian government is basically asking for and everyone else is asking for, for it to be taken seriously is, you know, the Egyptians go into the weeds of their system, they find a guy, Mm. they say, sorry, this member of the torture apparatus dropped the ball, got someone they shouldn't have done. He's now going to get punished for essentially the crime of mistreating a, a foreign citizen. Oh, but the crime of a yeah. state. If it's even the right guy, like yeah. maybe they just find a guy and yeah. say he did it and, you know, and, and, you know wrap it all up yeah. and then everyone shakes hands and, yeah. and, and, and goes problem home. Solved. Pro- yeah. Problem solved. Or is the issue that it is no longer considered acceptable that we should be associated with a regime that does all these kinds of things? Because clearly no amount of uh, uh, Italian upset or European upset or indeed anyone's upset, even if the United States said we're going to take all the $2 billion uh, a year away and the price is that you no longer have recourse to this 
apparatus of repression. At this point, they'd probably say no, because, I mean, the regime in Egypt's feeling is essentially they used to rely on the support of the United States and, uh, and, and Western allies to keep themselves in place. They got uh, uh, shafted back in the uh, turn of the decade. Mm -hmm. They spent a few years in the wilderness being uncertain for their lives and for their country's future. And now they've basically, after running the experiment of what happens when they loosen the apparatus of repression, they have decided the hell with that. The one lesson we've learned from the last five years is that this is the system, this is the government, and anyone who rocks the boat uh, go goes to the wall. Um, so those are two very different problems in terms of scale, and it will be interesting to see how we choose to play this, because from the point of view of outsiders and Egypt, mistreatment of a foreign citizen is a much easier outrage to get an apology and a clean-up for than outrage about the humanitarian situation, still less the security management internally of Egypt, I think. I think you've set out the cold realism behind it. it. That is my character. Yeah, you've done it well, because it's in no one's interest, from a realistic point of view, to go beyond this individual case yeah. and to get the apology. The fact is, is we're talking about hundreds who have been killed or disappeared. We're talking about hundreds who have been sentenced to death for political crimes because they belong to the Muslim Brotherhood in most cases, uh, thousands who have been detained, um, many hundreds who were killed just after the military took over in 2013. But here's the cold realistic fact behind it. In 2011, there was a deal struck with the Egyptian military when Mubarak was deposed. Mubarak didn't want to go. The Americans, who were rather late to the game, said to the Egyptian military, really, guys, he's got to go now. And the military said in response, okay, but you're not really touching us. And the Americans said, no, of course not. The army put up with the Muslim Brotherhood for this experiment for 2012, 2013. And then when they acted, there was a bit of back and forth as to whether there'd be a financial penalty. But in the end of the day, no. Why? Well, probably, again, first and foremost, and I hate to come back to it because of the Syria mess. And that is that while everybody is focused on this nightmare that Syria, you're not going to come after Egypt and penalize their regime, especially when that regime is being funded by the Saudis to the tunes of billions of dollars that were put in in 2013. Uh, you're not going to do it at a time when Lebanon is in an unstable situation. You're not going to do it at a time when you're not really sure what the hell's happening with Israel-Palestinian issue, where Egypt has been a broker in the past. And you're not going to do it when Egypt does have an Islamic state threat within its borders in the Sinai Peninsula, and when the state next door, Libya, is a fractured state with both an Islamic state presence and with not one, but two governments and multiple militias. So the fact is, is that Sisi, who's a very smart man, ruthless, smart, knows all this. And there's no leverage because there's not even a movement that's going to be able to swell like there was in 2010 mm -hmm. against the Egyptian regime. No, because the movement's been broken Absolutely systematically right. and thoroughly. And I think all you can say is, is beyond that is it. All you can do is continue to highlight the fact that this is taking place. The fact that hundreds of people are suffering killings, abductions, the uncertainty of what's happening. It is a human rights issue. You draw attention to it. But it is one of those cases where to pretend that there's any type of solution, regrettably, beyond doing that, it's just not there. Yeah, because it seems like this is, I mean, the category that this goes into in terms of the individual involved and in terms of those who know him is tragedy. Mm -hmm. But from the point of view of the governments, and I think I'm probably referring to the Western governments as much as the Egyptian ones, the category it goes in is embarrassment. Yeah. Because the thing, the problem with it is that it obliges them, however temporarily, to look directly at something that it is mutually convenient to ignore when it's happening to somebody else. Yeah. Um, you know, those 474 Egyptians, I don't remember uh, the Italian government feeling obliged to make a statement about that. But if one of your own citizens dies, you can't, for all sorts of other reasons to do with sovereignty and status, fail to say something. So it's, uh, it's something that doesn't have the level of gravity, I think, for the government's in question, that they would choose to give it in a different context where what they... You, know, you can imagine if, uh, you know, if an American citizen turned up dead in Iran in these circumstances, how that goes down, 
uh, especially if it was you know ten years ago. Whereas in some other circumstances, uh, you know, so in some circumstances, everyone is primed for performative outrage because that's what it's convenient for them to have. Yeah. In other circumstances, they are if. Even though they are the wrong parties or their citizens are the wrong parties, they're effectively embarrassed to have to talk about it because they'd prefer to make it go away quietly. Yeah, no, I agree. And the other thing that I would add is that enforced disappearance or disappearance is an echo of history. It's not a new tool. It's a, it's a very well-honed tool of um, authoritarian regimes over time. Mm. Look at Latin America. Look at, you know, look at Eastern Europe. Look, it, it, is, it is a very, very traditional tool of repression that has always had this response by uh, this convenient turning the other way of, uh, by, by allied states. And Egypt, you know, albeit that they had, I guess you might say, a bad patch vis-a-vis internal security and control in the immediate aftermath of, of Mubarak's fall, they are, you know, if, if there was international masterclasses on how you run a repressive internal security apparatus, <laughs> these guys would teach them, like it's a state with a really long track record over decades uh, of, of how you, you know, with suppleness and flexibility apply violence and coercion within your own society. Agreed. But, you know, just to add paradox on paradox, you know, the leverage against Egypt is economic. Mm. That's how you could really deal with it because they are now dependent on a great deal of foreign assistance. Mm. But, as we just mentioned, their largest donor of foreign assistance is a Saudi regime which is not known for exactly being enlightened when it comes to detention, punishment, and well, they'll, they'll, they'd, they'd probably do it for you if you asked them. There you go. Okay, well, I'm depressed, uh, <laughs> so I think we can, uh, we can safely wrap that up there. I think we've set the world to rights in as much as we can. Thank you very much for listening. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others to discover the pod. You can also come like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Paul Worldview, where you'll uh, find links to our shows and uh, various articles and things that we, that we mention and find uh, interesting. My co-hosts are Cristalia Kinthu. Uh, where can they find you on social media platforms should they choose to do so, Cristela? They can find me on Twitter at at Yakinthu, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. Well spelled. And Scott Lucas. Been doing it for a while. It's Scott Lucas underscore EA on Twitter. And it's EAWorldview.com for all the news and analysis that you might be wanting to read on a daily basis. I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, that's Adam Quinn 161, if we're being numerical about it on Facebook. You can also find me at Adam James Quinn on uh, Twitter. You can also find us back here uh, within just one week uh, doing a special edition talking about the primaries, uh, specifically Super Tuesday, the big wave of decision-making uh, uh, elections that are going to be happening within the American political parties in the presidential race next week. So please come back sooner than usual. Our producer is Connor McKenna. You've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department, University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back very soon. We hope you will be too. Bye. Bye. Bye.